every week. We're very thankful for uh, their service and the time that they spend. They spend uh, a lot of time that many of us don't see preparing, praying, doing all that. So we're very thankful for them and for so many of you who serve in a variety uh, of, of ministries here. So if you have a copy of God's Word, find 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We've been working our way uh, through this book, and you thought the original was good. Next week we start the sequel, so you don't have to wait like with your favorite movie a whole year for part two. We're going to start part two uh, in 2 Thessalonians next week. But look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 12 to verse 28. The Word of God says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of God. Now what? (laughs) Now what is probably one of the most important questions you can ask. And as a side note, did you know that you can have all the answers and yet be asking and answering the wrong questions? Well, today, Paul wants us to ask the right questions and get the right answers. Paul desires for the church in Thessalonica and our church, by extension, to ask the question, now what? Paul's been laying out over the last five chapters his example of Christian love, which we're to model. He's been laying out a call toward Christian holiness, which we're to follow. And he's been laying out the hope of Jesus' return, of which we wait as well. And in light of the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, has come to earth to save sinners, now what? In light of the fact and in the shadow of the fact that Jesus is going to return again to judge the living and the dead, what now? And this is where Paul concludes his first letter to the church. And it's important to see that as he concludes, he wants to consider the whole church, the gathered community of believers. And that's the context in which he asked the question. So often we want to ask, what is next for me? Whereas God would have us consider what is next for us. God wouldn't have us consider ourselves purely as individuals, but also the community that we're a part of. How are we to live together in light of this? 
Five times in these verses that we read, we see the word brothers, and it has an S on it. It's plural. And just a side note here, when he says brothers, it's it's translation's shorthand for everyone. He isn't just speaking to men. He's including the ladies in the things he's saying as well. And in addition, everywhere you see a verb here, it's in the plural. He's basically adding a y'all before every command, meaning that this was a vision. He wanted the whole body, the whole church to live out. And here's the vision. Here's the main idea in your notes. God's church living God's way by God's power. God's church living God's way by God's power. And we've seen that this passage is talking about God's church, the community of believers, the brothers and sisters in plural. But what does it mean to live God's way? The Holy Spirit provides three answers to the question, what now, by pointing us before pointing us toward our need for God's power. And he starts at the very top. He says that God's church must have leadership God's way. That God's church must have leadership God's way. Look at verse 12. Look at this. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. First, he tells us sort of the big idea that leadership must be respected and esteemed. That leadership must be respected and esteemed. Your translation may say to know them and to love them. To know them, to know their work, to respect it and appreciate it, and to let that flow into love and to esteem them very highly, even exceedingly in love. And let me just say as sort of a a side note here that this church has obeyed this so well during this month with the love that many of you have shown to to me and Dana with the cards and, and with your thank yous and your phone calls. And we're so appreciative of that, to, to, you, you, to esteem us that way, really put the word of God into action. So thank you for that. But also want to press on something else here that this text is telling us. And it's something that the culture is pushing back against. And it is that authority is a good thing. Many in our culture think that having that authority is somehow a bad thing inherently. We live in a world that's trying to tear down and deconstruct all authority and structure and hierarchy, but leadership and authority are ingrained in creation and given by God. Now, that doesn't mean that a good thing can't be a bad thing when it's abused and misused, because it can, but The problem isn't leadership itself, but rather the person in leadership. It's a problem of character, not a problem with what God created. God has given authority in the world, in governments and in leaders, in the church, through elders, and in the family, through parents, and through every sphere of our life. And while Paul's focused on church leadership here, it's worth being countercultural to see that we're called to esteem leadership, especially good leadership, wherever it can be found in a world where it is often very hard to find. And this leads us to ask this question, how can we recognize good leadership? How can we recognize good leadership? And Paul tells us what to look for. Look back at verse 12 again. Look at this. 
We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. He says, first, to recognize good leadership, look at their labor. Look at their labor. Look at their work. Good, healthy leadership done God's way isn't lazy. It isn't apathetic. It works hard. One commentator said in in terms of spiritual church leadership, he said that all idle bellies are excluded from the number of pastors. He says, if if you want to be idle, don't go into serving the church or leading anything. Because idle folks cannot lead anything. And I think that goes not just for pastors, but for any form of leadership. Don't call yourself a leader if you're not willing to labor. And what's some of the work that church leadership does? Second, we're told to look at their oversight. To look at their oversight. He writes of those who are over you or have oversight over you in the Lord. It tells us that part of spiritual leadership is oversight. That I hope it seems obvious, but for some of us, I think we need to see this, that leaders lead. And that means they have to have some authority and freedom to do so. Some churches, and I'm not speaking about ours here, I'm really not, but there's some churches that wonder, why won't my pastor lead? But then they have him tied up in 50 million committee meetings because they don't really trust him enough to pick out the flowers out in the lobby by himself. And then they wonder why he won't just take the lead and go with it, right? Good leaders have to be given authority to lead and have oversight. Certainly they need teams and accountability, right? But they need to be freed up to lead because oversight isn't micromanagement. So many people think that what it means to be a leader is to be bossy. We've all, we've all seen this, right? We've seen the young kid who really thinks he's going to be something one day, and, and, and he just starts telling folks what to do. And he's like, I'm the leader. But, friends, micromanagement isn't leadership. It's child care. If you have to point out every little thing somebody does and correct it and help them, that isn't leadership. That's control, And he says, in order to recognize good leaders, look at their labor, look at their work, but also look at the fact that they actually lead or oversee something. And third, he says, look at how they admonish. Look at how they admonish. Good, healthy leadership seeks to admonish, to correct, to teach, to offer wisdom and advice. If you aren't willing to speak openly and honestly, you're not ready to lead. And now some people hear that. And they're ready to just go be a bulldozer. Some people have that personality that when they say go be honest, they're ready to run down everybody in this room with exactly what they think about them. That's not what he's telling us to do. Because notice, he says that everything we do, we do in the Lord. But it certainly doesn't mean that we're a pushover either. There's always a balance we have to strike between grace and truth. And this passage is actually going to get more into that here in just a bit. But... Notice that the goal of all this is that they would be at peace among themselves. The Thessalonians had very obviously had some issues with leadership that led to chaos rather than peace, but good leadership, even through tumultuous times, 
brings whatever they are leading toward peace. God's church, in order to live God's way, must have leadership God's way. But we need more than leadership. He says, second, God's church must have community God's way. He moves from leadership now to the community. Look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, everyone, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Friends, this is packed with content, isn't it? But he turns from the leaders of the church to the church as a whole, and the Holy Spirit wants us to work all of us on striking a balance here. He says, first, that community God's way means we must be proactive. We must be proactive. And he says the word admonish again. All of these are verbs, things we have to be intentional to do, and he uses that verb admonish, and that's probably not a word that's in your vocabulary. So let me give you a definition. To admonish means telling someone what they need to hear, even if it may not be what they want to hear. It's telling someone what they need to hear, even if it may not be what they want to hear. And it's a word meaning that we have to make sure we are involved and care for each other and, 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 and stir one another up toward love and good deeds, willing to have hard conversations. And this requires us to be intentional, proactive. Look at the end of the letter, verse 25. Look what he says there at the end. He says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Notice he says that Christian community requires work, intentionality, being proactive to speak truth to one another, spending time praying for other people. He says to greet one another in love. And people often get caught up on that greet one another with a holy kiss thing. That was likely a cultural way people greeted one another in that day, the way we might fist bump in the days of COVID or elbow bump in the days of COVID, right? To give a, a cultural way of a hug or a greeting in that day. And he speaks of them being under oath to make sure this letter is publicly read. What a, what a level of commitment and trust that was there. And it doesn't come through living life by default, but only by proactive community, the way God designed it. God doesn't call any of us to live on an island or to live in our own echo chamber of people who are just like us, think just like us, and never rile us up a little bit. We need folks to speak into our life to admonish us in our strengths and sins, our hurts and our healings, our pros and our cons. And some of us are really good at this. Some of you already have somebody in mind. But if you don't, you're probably that person who, who brings everybody. They, they are, they're great at this. They're able to tell you exactly what they think and what you think they need to hear. They're very intentional. They're maybe very, very extroverted and can tell you those things. And we need people like that. But we also need to make sure that we strike the balance on the other side of the coin. Look what he continues to say. We're to admonish the idle. We're to encourage the faint-hearted. We're to help the weak. And we're to be patient with them all. We need to be intentional and proactive, yes. But we need, second, we need to be patient. 
We need to be patient with each other. Because hear this, patience is key because we are all a work in progress. We encourage one another to press on in the faith while remaining patient with one another's progress. Some of us have the temptation to run over other people and call it community and honesty and intentionality, and I just say it like it is. And the Holy Spirit wants us to be mindful that there are lots of reasons people are where they are. They may be faint-hearted, and what they need is a word of encouragement rather than a word of correction. They may be weak, and what they need is a hand up rather than your advice about what they should have done. We need to be patient, and we need to be mindful and careful about other people's real struggles. And in the days of social media, we are not mindful enough of this. Friends, we see something we disagree with, or we see someone walking in some struggle, and friends, we're quick to jump on the admonishment, but not quick enough toward the patience. We're quick to tell someone to step up, but slow to consider that maybe they're faint-hearted and weak and need a word to build them up rather than a correction to step up. He says, be careful. Try to strike this balance. And he also exhorts us to avoid revenge. He says at the end there, seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is a lesson to us because, friends, people will get it wrong. In fact, I can guarantee you, if you're around here long enough, someone here is going to miss the balance on this. Someone here is going to misstep and correct instead of offering you encouragement or be harsh when they should have been gentle. And the Holy Spirit says, instead of returning the same back, consider the good of the other person, even if the other person hurts you. Don't go, well, they were mean to me. I'm just going to be mean right back to them. Friends, aren't we so glad that God hasn't been that way to us? Community, God's way, means each of us doing our own parts, seeking each other's good, not our own personal hopes, our own personal help, seeking to be intentional, to admonish one another and be proactive, to pursue after one another, but also to be patient with each other. And this starts with each of us. Because we can't have a healthy community like this until we have healthy personal lives of faith. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. He wrote this incredible book called The Pursuit of God that I would commend you, even if you're not much of a reader. It's one of the first books I ever actually read all the way through as a high school student. So if I can do it back then, any of us can do it. And here's what he said there. He said, social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. And what he means is we all are better when each of us are doing what we're called to do. That as the body together, it begins with each of us personally living God's way. That as the body, we need to do our part to each of us live as faithfully as we can. And that's actually where our passage turns next. He goes from leadership God's way to community God's way to third, devotion God's way. Devotion God's way. And here's actually where Paul spends the bulk of his time. Look at verse 16. Look at this. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, 
Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. There's so much here. There is seven commands across these six verses. And through it all, Paul wants to speak to three areas of your life. First, he wants to say this, that God's people live a devoted life. That God's people live a devoted life, a life devoted to Jesus. Look what he says at verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So many of us, when we think of somebody living their life fully to God, we say their, their life must be full of all sorts of supernatural signs and wonders, and they must just wake up and, and the birds just sing, and God must speak audibly with them in the morning. Yet, what's presented here is certainly supernatural, but looks to our eyes as natural and mundane, because the Christian life, friends, is often miraculously mundane. And here's what he says, that a life fully devoted to God, he starts by saying that we rejoice always. That a life of devotion to God means having joy in God regardless of circumstances. And friends, this is easy to do when you're on top of the world. Though, friends, let me tell you, the mountaintop has its own spiritual struggles. But what about when you're at the bottom of despair? What about when you have, as Charles Spurgeon called, the dark nights of the soul? He isn't saying that we're to be stoic and unfeeling or that sadness is something to feel guilty about, but rather, he says, God's word wants to change your perspective. He's showing you that there is more to your life than your suffering that you may be experiencing, that in Christ, that in Christ there is a purpose to what might seem purposeless, that behind his frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Look what he says. He, he sheds light on this over in Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Look what Paul says there. Through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith in this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and, produ and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit he has given to us. He says, rejoice always, because even in your darkest moments, God is doing something. God is producing in you hope in the end, that God is with you, his grace is sufficient for you, even in your darkest moments. He says, rejoice always, because God is always at work in your life in a thousand ways, even if you can see none of them. He says, rejoice always, and then he says, pray without ceasing. Be in an ongoing communion with God. So many people sit down and they go, well, if I want to have a real prayer life, I've got to spend six hours every morning doing nothing but prayer before I get up and do anything. And let me tell you, if you're going to set that as your New Year's resolution, you're going to fail. Just putting that out there, right? And there's nothing wrong with long, concentrated times of prayer. But the beautiful thing about prayer is that you can do it anytime, anywhere. Maybe before you sit down to try to spend six hours in concentrated prayer, maybe try to make it something that you do throughout your day. 
How often do you stop and pray for God's help, for his presence, for opportunity, or just to thank him for who he is throughout your day? You do know he doesn't have to be confined to your morning devotion time or your evening devotion time, right? You can talk to him and have this ongoing prayer without ceasing in your life. And then he says, the word of be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is what the maturing Christian life is going to look like. He says the more mature in faith you get, the more thankful you should get. And if we're to measure our own spiritual maturity by our thankfulness, how old are we? Something for us to consider this week. If we're to measure our maturity in the faith by our thankfulness, how old are we? Thankfulness is central to what it means to live a life devoted to God and what it means to have a spirit-filled life. And in fact, it's very important to see that verse 16 to 18 flow right into verse 19, which says this, Do not quench the Spirit. This verse is one of those ones I like to call a ketchup verse. A ketchup verse. Have you ever met somebody who puts ketchup on everything? They put it on eggs. They put it on mac and cheese. Friends, I've seen some people put it on chocolate cake. Weird people, right? Some of y'all are looking at somebody, and that may not be the best idea, but that's okay. Well, ketchup verses are verses that people try to apply to everything, even things they really shouldn't be applied to or they don't apply to. And some people talk all about quenching the Spirit, and, and they want to talk about some, some experience that happened. I didn't get the experience I wanted in worship, so the Spirit must have been quenched. But notice, Paul says that the primary meaning of quenching the Spirit has to do with us not living a life marked by the fruits of the Spirit. That what it means to quench the Spirit, literally to blow the flame out, is that we cease living by God's power, the way God has called us to live. We so often focus in on our experience, but rather, he says that the mark that the Spirit isn't being quenched in your life is that you have joy over and and admits your suffering. That you don't breathe air of complaint, but rather air of prayer. That you mark not what is missing in your life, but that you mark your blessings. That you Try to live by God's power in your life, not according to your own preferences, but rather by his precepts. Paul's going to come back to this, but he says you can't live out this vision in your own power. You need the Holy Spirit who's been given to you through faith in Jesus. That the Spirit causes us to live a devoted life. Devotion, God's way, is a devoted life, but it also enables us to be people who have divine discernment. God's people have a divine discernment. Look at verse 19 again. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. Notice what happened. Paul's just moved from quenching the Spirit in your life to quenching the Spirit by what you believe. And he says, here, strike another balance. Be careful not to despise prophecy. Don't despise something that might come from God. But he says, rather, test it. Hear it and hold fast to what is good. 
Consider how important this would have been to the Thessalonians who had been beset with these rumors that the Apostle Paul really didn't like them and they had all of this end times controversy going on. Consider today how it doesn't take very long to go get on YouTube and find wild teaching out there. And friends, it's not even just on YouTube. It's in Christian bookstores and Christian places that at least call themselves Christian. And there's all sorts of wild things out there. We need to be careful. And he says, be careful to test, to weigh everything against God's word and to hold fast to what is true. We're so quick to read it and go, well, it sounds good on the surface. I'm going to believe it and apply it to my life. Friends, we do this with social media all the time. Well, Facebook said it. Must be true, right? Whereas maybe it's better to weigh and to test and to take our time to chew on it, even months, and not have an opinion before forming an opinion about it. Paul or John echoes this warning in 1 John chapter 4. And look what he says. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, that ultimately behind every teaching is a spirit, Right, But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Then he offers one of many examples, that by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Friends, I've heard it all the time. There's people, they'll have this huge experience and they'll go, well, if I had such a good experience, how could that not have been spirit-filled? Friends, the devil would love to get you on a spiritual high and deceive you right on into hell. Friends, be careful. The way we know the Spirit of God is by testing the truth of what the messenger brings to us. There's so many of us who have an aversion to things like theology and and doctrine and to hear those words, but the Bible tells us that false teaching quenches the spirits, that bad theology and false doctrine are what blow out the flame of the Holy Spirit's power in our life. So don't ever pit, don't ever do this. I've heard people pit spirit and doctrine to get like against each other. Like, well, it, it, if they're talking a lot about doctrine and want to believe the spirit obviously can't be at work too. He says, the, but we need to realize the Holy Spirit is a theologian and it matters what we believe. The spirit cares that we are walking in truth. He is called the spirit of truth. And we don't quench the Spirit by living opposed to God's will or by not believe, and we don't quench the Spirit by believing everything we hear. He says, live, have devotion God's way, have a devoted life, have divine discernment. And finally, he says, God's people live with a distinct holiness. Live with a distinct holiness. Look at verse 22. Look what he says. Pretty simple. Abstain from every form of of evil. Don't participate. Be distinct from every form of evil in the world. Paul doesn't mince words here. He doesn't put a little asterisk down and go, well, except for this person or this form of evil, then then it's okay. It tells us that the Spirit of God will not lead you to do something that God has not blessed. And God is never calling you to participate in evil, ever. Ever, ever, ever. 
the Spirit has not called us to participate in or to celebrate something that God's Word clearly condemns. And that's another reason we need God's Word and we need community to help us and correct us to live this out as we should. And friends, this isn't easy because, friends, in an evil world, abstinence from evil will be hard. People might abstain from you. And obedience to Jesus involves suffering. It may even involve being rejected yourself. It may be involved, it will involve being seen as weird or different. Here's what Jesus said. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. A cross that may mean the rejection of the world. A cross that may mean being called names. A cross that might mean not being the most popular person or not having the most friends. A cross that might look a hundred different ways, but a cross that leads to glory. And friends, none of this is possible in your own strength. Leadership God's way can't be done simply by reading the latest management books or by getting the right training. Community God's way can't be manufactured, and while a church program can facilitate it, it can't create it. And devotion God's way can't be done in your own strength, by your own might, or your own wisdom. Let me have you consider this in closing. God's church can only live God's way by God's power. By God's power. And this is, where, this is why Paul puts a benediction at the end of his letters. We've talked about this, but benedictions are blessings, asking God to give us what we need in order to do what he's asked. Look at verse 23. Look at this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Here Paul asks God to sanctify, cleanse, purify, make holy his people completely in all that we are to keep us blameless until his coming. To cause us to live as God's church in God's way, trusting that he is faithful and he will do it. And he closes by telling us that we need God's power and spirit far more than we know. That we are weak, and it's only by embracing our own weakness that God makes us strong. Friends, we can't rely on methods. We can't rely on marketing. We can't rely on our own wisdom, though none of those things are bad. But apart from the spirit of God, they are empty. And church, if we believe that this is a biblical vision for our church, then we need biblical power to accomplish it. When was the last time we got on our face before our Lord and begged for his power? Did you know that Jesus came to earth not simply to pardon you from your sins? He certainly did that, but also to give you power to conquer your sins? That Jesus Christ came to earth and lived a fully human life without sin to be a substitute for us, but also to give us the Holy Spirit to enable us to live more like him. That Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place, bearing the punishment that we deserve for our sins, but also so that the Holy Spirit might rest on us. And on the third day, he rose again, and we're told that the same Spirit that raised, that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in us by faith. 
Jesus died to forgive us of our sins and he rose for our justification. And along with that, he gave us his Holy Spirit and the Spirit awakens us to our need for Jesus and empowers us to walk with Jesus. Friends, pardon from your sin and power over your sin is available today through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But as God's people, we don't take verse 19 seriously. We're told not to quench the Spirit, and yet many of us have never even given thought to the fact that we might be doing that. And may we not quench the Spirit that we have been given. And I want us to do something a little different in closing this morning. I know a couple members of the band are going to come up, but we're not going to sing as we normally uh, would. What we're going to do, if you're physically able, I invite you to kneel in your seats, to come to the front here, to the altar, to whatever you're able to do, and to pray to God and ask for his power to be with us. To cause us to walk as he would have us to walk, to pray for revival in our church and in our community to ask for him to pour out his spirit upon our church and upon our community and to come before him, more important than your posture, is ultimately the posture of our hearts, recognizing our weakness and our need for him and pleading for his power. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to close in in prayer here. And I invite you when I say amen to whether it's to kneel in your seat or to just sit there and pray or to come forward if you feel comfortable with you and your family and to just spend time pleading for God to give us power to do what God has called us to do. I can't be the only one that feels like sometimes God's people are powerless in this world and we need another power from another world to help us. So I'm going to pray and invite you up and then after after people have prayed, I'm going to close our time in prayer together. But may we in this time ask God to do what only he can do. Let's pray together. Father God, we need you. We as your church cannot do anything in our own power, by our own strength. We've seen your vision for leadership done your way, for community done your way, and for our private devotional life done your way, and we need your help. We can't do it in our own strength. We can't, we're weak, but you're strong and be the strength in the midst of our weakness. God, we ask that you through Jesus would hear our prayers, that you would meet with our church and give us revival. Life from the dead, awaken us from any lukewarmness that we have. And Lord, may you sanctify us completely, body, soul, and spirit, and keep us blameless until you're coming. And we know that you are faithful and that you will surely do it. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Lord God, we come to you as a church family, confessing and knowing that the prayers of your righteous people are powerful and effective. And so we do ask in this season and going forward, Lord, that you would meet with us by your spirit, that you would empower us and enable us to see more than just the life that we live, but the needs of others around us who need your gospel. Lord, that you've called us not simply to fill a seat, but to fill the world with your goodness and your glory and your good news. Lord, we ask that you'd enable us to see that we're weak and that we need your power to live as you would call us to live. And so, Lord God, we do need your help. And we confess and ask that your spirit and your power would rest on us and help us awaken us from sleep and slumber and from any apathy among us to serve you fully and boldly for your glory. And we pray Ephesians 3.20 together. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.